We're reading through Romans 8, 1 through 17 today, and I'll take a moment to go ahead and read that. And um, then we'll get started, but I'll go ahead and tell you we are not moving through this um, in the order that it is presented to us, but rather from an idea base. So it'll be a little bit different than we typically go through our Sunday schools, but I'm hoping to pull together some key themes from this and help us to read this um, in a light that gives us a better understanding. So let's read through this wonderful chapter. 45 minutes, I'm sure, is not enough time to do it justice, but we'll do the best we can. Romans 8, 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Lots of fours and therefores and so thens. So you can see how Paul is weaving together this argument. But first, let's start with a bigger idea. One which is necessary to <clears throat> consider, one which Paul has been considering all through this, and one which has puzzled philosophers as a point of contention all throughout uh, history. It's one which is so contentious that I think there are many arguing about it today. Uh, philosophers and theologians coming together, even the layman coming together to try and answer this question, and yet one which seems so obvious based on our cultures and the assumptions that we have that if you ask anybody, if you go up to anybody in your life, at your work, on the street, they would probably be able to answer this question without hesitation within a couple of seconds. And that question is, is man basically good or basically bad? And I imagine, if I ask you this question, as I'm going to do in just a second, that I know exactly what your answer is going to be. And so, um, well, first let's speak of some key tenets that have influenced our thinking. So the two anchors in history that have tried to address this question, although there are many, would be Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes. And Rousseau popularized this idea of the noble savage, which is to say <clears throat> man is essentially good, 
but society has corrupted him. And if we can just get man out of society, then we can see man in his pure and innocent form. And Thomas Hobbes is frequently cited as one who contends against this idea. He is the author of a book called Leviathan, which probably many have heard of, but um, if you're anything like me, you haven't read all of it. But the Leviathan that Thomas Hobbes uses symbolism for a strong authority figure. So he writes about a strong government. But he uses this beast as a symbolic representation of some authority over man. Hobbes says man is essentially bad and then uses that to justify in his writing, his political writings, a strong government to guide mankind, to bring us to good. So when you ask this question, oftentimes there's the uh, dichotomy between these two writers, these two thought leaders, as it were, giving us the answer and we side with one of them or the other. So I'll show my hand a little bit here. I'm going to ask this question and just ask for a show of hands for good versus bad. But um, after I ask that question, then I'm going I'm to ask you, whichever, question, whichever one you don't lean towards, argue in favor of that, debate club style. Tell me what the good is, what the truth is, what the nuggets of right are in that idea. So let's go ahead and ask it for dramatic effect. Are people, with a show of hands, generally bad? That's about what I expected. Are they generally good? We have any favors, okay? So we got one adventurous soul out here, Ron, willing to put himself out there. <clears throat> so almost everybody here says generally bad. You have a comment, Travis? No, I'll stand with Ron. Oh, okay, standing with, stand with Ron. Okay, we've got two strong souls standing together here. So then, debate club style, if everyone generally is in agreement, mankind is generally bad, then why is it so convincing to people to believe that man is generally good? What are the nuggets of truth in this statement, in this philosophy? Okay, so that'd be a key question to ask. How do you define good and bad? Mm -hmm. Yep, so it's... Yep, there you go. So I'd rather think of myself as being generally good. Not Hitler, yeah, so... I'm better than many people. Sure. Yeah. So there's glimmers of goodness in there. Yep. Good. Yeah, there you go. So we've got glimmers of hope uh, coming together for uh, um, other, other humanity. Sure, okay. So we've got <clears throat> the counter argument, right, is we can do good things, but we do it all self-centeredly. So Paul, although not directly, of course, has something to say about this. And he speaks strongly about it, and he speaks to our desire to answer that man is good. We want to be able to answer that man is good, do we not? It's a temptation that we should be able to answer that way. And I don't think it's with joy that any of us raises our hands to say that man is essentially bad. None of us does that with a sly smile or 
you know, an I told you so, or perhaps we do, but we ought not to. So let's look at some general ideas that Paul brings to the table. Three ideas we're going to look at, and we're pulling verses somewhat out of order to get to these ideas. The first is the flesh brings death. The second is the spirit brings life and assurance. And then lastly is that through the spirit, God adopts us as sons. So the first, the flesh brings death. And this most obviously is seen, Hobbes would argue that the general state of mankind is evil. Rousseau would agree that society is evil in general, so this conglomeration of people. So we see some agreement in this. And Paul says the flesh brings death. This is something that Paul has established earlier in the letter. He spent quite a bit of time talking about this in Romans, probably most concisely summarized by Romans 3, 10 through 12, where he says, uh, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For, and then in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Pretty definitive. Now as an aside, as we're considering these two philosophers, but also the language that's used all throughout the scripture, and especially in Romans, it's essential that we see in Romans 3, he uses the term sin. We'll look through Romans 8, he uses the term flesh. And then there are other times throughout the scriptures where we use the term the world. And these terms are often used synonymously to point to the same concept throughout scripture. And they seem to me to highlight different aspects of this. So sin highlighting the failure to stand up to the law and the righteousness of, of God and opposition to God in a way. The flesh, which is highlighting the natural state of man, as it were, and the world highlighting not the individual flesh, but the tendencies of mankind in general, almost setting forth the world as a separate place and God as his own entity, holiness, if you will. So each of these focus on a different element. They highlight a different aspect. They all speak of the same truth, of the same entity. Um, and the flesh is what Paul relies on most often here in this text to speak of that concept. Now, in, in the history of redemption, as is alluded to by that term, the world, there are two separate realms, flesh and spirit. And you see this highlighted. First, Paul implies it in verse 2 when he says the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he makes it a little bit more overt in the line of reasoning that starts in verse 5 which is for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So he's contrasting the two ways of life, the two ways of walking, the two things to which you can set your mind on, either the flesh or the spirit. And you can see that these are two broad general principles because of course we know that there are many things that you can do, there are many things you can set your mind on, and yet Paul says, these are ultimately encompassed in two realms, the realm of the flesh and the realm of the spirit. And these two realms are overarching powers, just like we saw in chapter 6 with the symbolism of slavery. These are driving your ways of thinking, your behaviors. They set your assumptions for your hopes. They establish your lifestyles. They, they set forth a worldview that tells you what your values are as you live in these two different ways. Now, Paul goes on to say, as he's describing these two realms, 
that sin is not committed in a vacuum. So you don't live in one of these two realms with no consequence. Looking at chapter, or sorry, verses 5 and 6, he's saying, if you live according to the flesh, you will set your minds on the things of the flesh. One flowing naturally from the other, first the mind, then the action, or perhaps even first the action and then the mind. So the life of action impacts the thought life and vice versa. You cannot live, believe, set forth one morality with your mouth and then live in a different way for very long. It will impact who you are. So you can think of it just as we might say someone who tells a lie, well, you made a mistake. But if you do that ten times, now you're a liar. It impacts who you are. And we notice that in the way that we describe people. So it's not simply doing an action, but Paul says here it's molding your soul towards something. And as he moves through this line of thinking, five in verses 5 through 8, we'll say, Paul realizes to us that this is molding your soul essentially towards death. So the sinner is not merely committing an act, but he is conforming his mind and his soul to sin, which is the thing that gives birth to death. And thus he is, he is molding his soul away from God. We see that the one who is in the flesh cannot please God because his virtues, his values, his goals, his actions are ultimately oriented towards something else. And so the natural conclusion of this is that there is no neutrality towards God. If we live in one set of realms, if we act according to one set of values or another, we see that the molding of the mind is leading towards death and thus hostility towards God. If God is life himself and you conform yourself to death, then we see as it were that there is no victimless crime. There is no victimless sin. Every sin is a sin against God. Every sin is a rebellion against God. So the, the atheists who claim, for example, well, you're a Christian, you believe in one God. I just believe in one less God than you, thinking very tritely that they've proven something. They think in their mind that they're neutral observers trying to objectively determine, well, is there a God or isn't there? But in fact, everything they do is the realm of the flesh. <clears throat> it's interesting, I think, even psychologically, you'll note, I've learned, that um, psychologists have found pretty definitively that being self-centered in your thought, orienting your thought excessively toward yourself from a medical standpoint is almost ind indistinguishable from experiencing negative emotion. The way it shows up on brain imaging, the way it shows up on your life, if you look mostly inwardly, mostly towards yourself, that's indistinguishable from anxiety, depression, negative emotion. So it's fascinating that <clears throat> even from a medical standpoint, we're finding that this pride, this inward focus, rather than an outward focus towards God, has ramifications. It makes me think also of uh, what C.S. Lewis has to say. His famous quote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. These are the things of the flesh. When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we look for the immediate gratification of the things of the flesh. And this is what the Israelites did as well, is it not? The Israelites who wanted to go back to Egypt, they were dissatisfied with the manna that was provided to them. And it's not merely that they longed to go back to Egypt because they were tired of the wilderness, they hated God, although there are elements of that true, but if you look at what they say, they, they say, look at all the food that we have, look at the abundance that we had. For the Israelites, Egypt is not merely anti-God, it is the provision of your immediate needs. <clears throat> they had everything they needed to meet their immediate needs in Egypt. Everything was provided for them, and yet <clears throat> God was missing their spiritual needs, their long-term needs, missing. And so your, the, uh, the provision of your worldly needs, the realm of the flesh, leads to spiritual starvation and spiritual death. Next we see, <clears throat> and this is what we have been establishing, chapters 1 through 7, more or less, in Romans. Paul has spent quite a bit of time establishing this. Next we see that the Spirit brings life and assurance. So this is Rousseau saying society is not uh, what has corrupted man, but man corrupted society, right? So we need to be, Rousseau got right that we need to be a part of a different society to achieve that righteousness. Now, everything else that he had about his idea was wrong about how to accomplish that. Don't hear me incorrectly. But we, he was right in, we have to escape this society, the world, that is, in order to have a hope of righteousness. But how can we do that? That's the question. If we're, if we're dying to know so desperately, how can we be able to say that man is basically good? How can we escape the condemnation that we know comes by saying man is basically bad? Well, Paul does what he does best here in Romans. He tells us the gospel. This is his answer. Verse 3, you see that God gave the Israelites the law. The law demanded perfect obedience. It says that in verse 4. There is a righteous requirement of the law that must be fulfilled. So he goes on to tell us that the weakness of the flesh is where the problems with the law came up. It was because, well, not that the law was flawed. The law is the character of God. There is no flaw in his character. The law, you might say, is our first systematic theology of who God is, what he's like. But the law rather highlighted our sin, and it cried out for us to turn to Christ. It should have driven us to Christ, but rather, because of our brokenness, because of our sin, we looked at the law and they said, well, there can't be anything wrong with me, so there must be something wrong with the law. So how do we fix this? God gave us the law. He gave us the rules of the game, and we couldn't keep them, so God sent Christ to keep the law. <clears throat> Christ took on flesh. He took on the form of sinful flesh, it says. That's in verse 3. And Paul uses this language in order to walk on the very, very thin line that you have to walk. He took on this form. He did take on flesh, but not sinful flesh. Up until this time, though, Everyone in the flesh had been sinful. Everyone. And yet Christ took on this flesh in his perfection and never sinned. 
in perfect holiness. And he fulfilled the obedience that was demanded of the law. And he received the judgment that should have been given to us. So Christ fulfilled that obedience. Here Augustine has some great insight. This is what it should have been. Law was given that grace might be sought. And grace was given that law might be fulfilled. So all along, the law, the character of God pointing towards grace. And in his obedience and in his death, what did Christ do for us? Verse 1. The glorious thing, the thing we all look for towards our hope, this brilliant proclamation of Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So this is our answer. This is our hope, he says. If you are torn down and stricken by the truth that man is essentially bad, there is hope for you that one man is essentially and perfectly good. That one man can provide to you everything you need for your sanctification and your righteousness. There is now no condemnation. A new era, a new covenant that Christ brings. And it is the power of the Spirit that grants us this access to redemption through Christ. For we must live according to the, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, he says, in order to obtain this. So Paul answers this in this way. He says, who are the recipients of this blessing? That is where he says, those who walk according to the flesh. Um, How is this fulfilled, we may ask? If it is fulfilled in the spirit, if we must walk according to the spirit, as our evidence of this, how is it fulfilled? He can't be saying we live a perfect life, lest he forget what he just taught us in chapter 7. So Calvin here is helpful. Calvin, speaking about the first half of of verse 4, that is, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, here's what Calvin has to say about that. The faithful, while they sojourn in this world, never make such a proficiency as that the justification of the law becomes in them full or complete. Our sanctification is never complete. This then must be applied to forgiveness. For when the obedience of Christ is accepted for us, the law is satisfied so that we are counted just. Paul says this in not so many words in Philippians. He says, not that I am yet already perfect, but I strive after it. He looks to Christ as his ultimate goal. Not that he will be perfect, but that Christ will carry him towards that. So Paul goes on, starting in chapter 9, and this is where the assurance aspect comes in. The Spirit brings us salvation, but he also gives us assurance. He's making this contrast in verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong in him. But if Christ is in you, he goes on, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So all through that, especially in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to the death the deeds of the body, you will live. Is Christ here, or sorry, is Paul here giving us an instruction manual 
on how to get to heaven. Why not? What then is he giving us? What does Paul offer to us by all these if-thens? Christ. Okay. Can you expand on that? That's the church answer. It's the Sunday school answer. That's right. So first, yes, so first he establishes in verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh. So don't pay the flesh. The flesh will still demand of you obedience. Chapter 7, Paul talks about, I know not what I do. When I want to do good, I do evil. So this reminds me, actually recently, you all know Alexander, our son, was in the NICU, and we're still getting medical bills coming in on that. And there's one thing, there's, if there's one thing I was taught about insurance and medical bills before I moved off to college and everything, it's always check your explanation of benefits, your EOB. Was anyone else, anyone else does that? Or am I the only, yeah, am I the only one? Okay, so if you don't do that, you should do that. Your EOB, it comes through, it tells you what did insurance pay, what are you supposed to owe? So that stuck with me and I'm thankful that it did because I got a, mail, a bill in the mail just last week, pulled it up, said it seems like a lot, checked my explanation of benefits, no insurance run on it. So whether from innocent mistake or uh, because they knew insurance wouldn't pay them very much money, <clears throat> this bill arrived in our mail crying out to be paid, demanding something which we didn't know. Just as sin knocks at your door, eager and ready to take you, that's what God told Cain, sin is waiting, crouching at the door for you, demanding of you something which you can never pay, but it demands it of you nonetheless. And here Paul says, you don't owe anything. Your debt has been paid. The flesh makes demands of our obedience, which it has no right to make. Christ has paid for that obedience. Mu explains this to us, like freed slaves who might, out of habit, obey their old masters even after being released, legally and positionally released from them. So we Christians can still listen to and heed the voice of that old master of ours, the flesh. And then in chapter 13, all these if-thens, if-thens, are not given to us to bring doubt into our minds, but rather to show us the certainty of the connection between what the Spirit will do for us, what the Spirit brings forth in our life, and what inheritance we have as a result of that. And here in this interpretation, um, although I don't often use these terms, they, they simplify things that maybe are more complicated than this, but this is, here's where the Calvinist and the Arminian differ. Where the Arminian believes Paul is issuing a warning, wagging his finger, so to speak, that a true believer may fall back into the flesh and die, the Calvinist understands that although we may commit acts of the flesh, 
fall back into hearing our old master, that we are still led by the Spirit, that the Spirit is faithful, that God is faithful and capable of bringing forth in us that which he promised. And he, Paul, through this, has offered us great pains. He has gone through great pains to offer us assurance against this Arminian-type interpretation as merely a warning. We don't know what you'll do. We have no way of knowing what you'll do. He says, rather, look to yourself. Look what the Spirit is doing in you. Look at the redemption that you are offered. And even heeding my warning, the Spirit will work in you. But because of the certainty of the death of Christ and because the certainty of the power of the Spirit, Paul is putting forth this message of assurance to us that we are made clean right now. Douglas Moo, again, the author of that commentary, is helpful. Holiness of life, then, is achieved neither by our own unaided effort, um, moralism or legalism, nor by the Spirit, apart from our participation, as some who insist that the key to holy living is surrender or let go and let God would have it. But by our constant living out the life placed within us by the Spirit who has taken up residence within us. This is a difficult reality to understand. It's holding two things like magnets that can't quite come together in our minds. But the true reality of nature and of our nature and of our salvation holds within it this synthesis, this coming together of these truths that only God can generate within us right living, yet we are responsible to act out this living which is granted to us by the Spirit. As Paul comes through verse 13 into verse 14, he grants us this better hope, something which Hobbes and Rousseau are not able to grasp. Man is by nature sinful, yes. They've gotten that. <clears throat> the sin is both known as the flesh, the individual man. It's also the world, the society in which he dwells. And it merits a death. We feel that when we, when we pull away from saying that man is essentially bad. But you cannot avoid this simply by leaving society. You cannot withdraw from our society. You cannot even withdraw from the world and escape from the sin. Yes, it is true that you must submit to a higher authority, Hobbes says. But where Hobbes gets it wrong is that Hobbes would have you submit to the Leviathan, the tyrant, the overruling, overriding threat demanding your submission. And God would have us submit not to a tyrant, but to a father as sons. And Paul tells us here, the sons, we are distinguished by the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 14, again, starting with four for all who are led is where he starts, indicating that the preceding statement explains the proceeding, what is to come, explains the preceding statement. So how then does putting death to the deeds of the body by the Spirit lead to life? And Paul's answer is, if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you're doing so by the Spirit. 
And if you are doing so by the Spirit, then you are a son. If you are fighting against the deeds of the flesh, you are a son of God. Have assurance in that. Just as the Son of God was resurrected into life, so our dead flesh is resurrected into spiritual life. So that which God does for his son Israel, remember he freed Israel from slavery, he led them through the trials of the wilderness into their inheritance, into the promised land, he now does for us. Christ was the perfect archetype of this, being baptized, going into the wilderness, acting out the life that God demanded, acting out the law perfectly, now he does for us. He frees us from the slavery of Egypt, the slavery of sin. He takes us through the trials of the wilderness where we don't belong, the trials of this world. We are sojourners, remember, belonging to another land, and he delivers us into the inheritance of eternal life. And so now, not as uh, citizens under a tyrant, but as sons, God calls us to address him with affection. Because you have to ask all through this, if we were under the spirit of sin, and now we're under the spirit of God, the spirit of life, if the spirit of sin brought us into slavery, if it demanded obedience, if it continues to demand obedience, which we cannot pay, who then is this spirit that you're telling us that we're under now? And Paul tells us once again with his great hope that this is the spirit of adoption, the spirit in whom we cry, Abba, Father. Remembering here, um, Mark 14, 36, this is where Christ cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is Christ's cry of desperation, his most intimate moment with the Father, it's the Aramaic term that he used. It is ascribed only to Christ in the scriptures until this point. And Paul grants us this use. He grants us this intimacy with God that was ascribed only to Christ, highlighting our adoption, highlighting that we are brothers and sisters with Christ and co-heirs. Martin Luther helps us about the word Abba. Martin Luther says, this is but a little word. And yet, notwithstanding, it comprehends all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affections of the heart speak after this manner. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side, and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, the presence of God, yet I am a child of God, and you are my Father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the Beloved. Therefore, this little word, Father, conceived effectually in the heart, passes all the eloquence of the most eloquent rhetoricians that ever were in the world. This is the prayer of a child, Abba Father. Crying out to God, if you have never known what to pray, this is that cry. If you have never known where to go or what to do, this is that cry. And since then we are sons and daughters, children of God, we are heirs. And Paul uses this point now as a transition point to say <clears throat> he's moving now into the topic of suffering. 
if we're sons, if we have the inheritance, if we are saved, if we are redeemed, why do we suffer so? From our future and our past, why do we suffer so? And he's only entering into this. I don't want to take from um, who is to come next for us in the latter half of Romans 8. But he is saying, Christ suffered before you that though the effects of sin are still present in the world, I have set it forth so that in the footsteps of the first fruit, your brother, Christ, who suffered for glory, you will suffer for a short time so that you may receive grace and hope and peace eternally. And I started to skip over this because we're running out of time, but I think it's important to ask this question. How would you explain God's adoption to someone who does not have good memories or good associations of their earthly father? There's a better hope, yeah. Other thoughts? Yes. Any other thoughts? Yes, good. God is not, I don't, I don't think it's wrong to use this term, so this is not a critique. I think we, everyone just used this term. But God is not merely a better father. He is not best on the list of fathers. He is not one under the idea of father. He is the father. He is the one by whom we have an understanding of what it means to be father. It is his very essence to be a father. Whatever you lacked in your father, whatever you saw as good in him, you recognized as good because you knew God in some way. Whatever you recognized as wanting, you wanted that because God set forth who, uh, what it is to be a father. And all earthly fathers are called to obey and to mimic the father the one who is, by his very essence, the Father, the one who forgives perfectly. And Paul shows us here, as children of God, as we close, the adoption of sons, he says, goes far beyond dry, cold dogma. It goes beyond rigorous theology. It goes beyond mere agreement to some proposition. But 
he contrasts these two emotional states, falling back into fear and crying, Abba, Father. And he shows, listen, this cry is not a shallow emotional experience. It's one that comes out from the deepest depths of your understanding, from your very core, when you cannot think, just as Christ cried out in desperation, as in a way, in Mark, it was not cold logic, it wasn't devising schemes, it was pure. The very core of his understanding of God was Abba Father, the one to whom you can cry out, the one to whom you, from whom you receive comfort. When a child is hurt or afraid or lost, he does not reason his way into whom he should cry out to. He does not think through the list of people. He doesn't <clears throat> reach his yell by logic, but from pure emotion, from the understanding of the one who has been there ever since his birth, ever since he lacked the, cognit like the cognitive ability to even know that there was anything outside of himself. He knows that his mom, his dad have always been there and cries out for help. And we, because of the Spirit, because of what Christ has done for us, freed us from condemnation, granted us hope of assurance, we as children turn to God and we can find comfort in him. Any last thoughts? Yes. I think Hobbes writes in some part from a Christian standpoint, I, I could be dead wrong in this. I think Rousseau is more enlightenment, which was moving away from that. Um, I, I don't know if he did or not, but I would venture to say, and why I like delving into these thinkers is because I think that they see what we see in natural revelation and they can pick at the truth, but never seem to get to it. And that's why I find value in pulling out from their thinking is we can contrast, they are heavy influences on our current society, especially Rousseau, and we can contrast what they say, what our society now has an understanding of compared with what Paul says through Christ. Um, all right, thank you, everybody. Let's pray, and we'll close. We'll dismiss. God, thank you for this time of discussion and thought. We pray that your word would ring true in our hearts, that the gospel would shine forth to us, that we would be changed, that you would bring us from faith to faith, save us every day, and that um, as we move into worship, that you would grant to our hearts a genuine turning to you, calm and quiet our minds from all other worries and worldly things, and cause us to orient ourselves to you and to offer ourselves in worship and mold our hearts that it might be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.